Hello, I'm Bruce McGeckin. My guest for this show is John Shewan. John has had a long career in accounting, business and now academia. He is an independent company director, former chair of PwC and serves as an adjunct professor at Victoria University. He sat on the Buckle Tax Working Group in 2010 and has been a tax practitioner throughout his career. He is truly not just New Zealand's top tax expert, but also brings intellectual firepower together with practical shrewdness to our business community. In this episode, we'll discuss why the Capital Gains Tax 2019 recommendation failed, lessons from tax reform throughout the decades, including the rebellion against Muldoon's tax rates, wide support and importance of the broad-based low-rate approach, Always talk about tax in terms of trade-offs and how taxpayers will be no worse off. For example, Sir John Key selling the GST and income tax rate changes together. Unless there is a crisis, then incremental tax change with compromises is the best approach. The government needs to actively sell their tax changes or others will take over messaging. We'll also discuss the strengths of a land tax, especially if accompanied by decreased income tax and increased entitlements. Government and demographic spending requirements putting extreme pressure on personal tax rates. Bracket creep is now resulting in low income levels paying a 30% marginal rate. Either income tax or GST rates will need to increase within 10 years unless the tax base is broader. Hello, I'm Bruce McGeckin and this is the Curious Kiwi Capitalist Podcast. What are we trying to do with taxes here in New Zealand? There's really three three major objectives with taxes, aren't there? The, the first one and the primary one is to raise the revenue that government needs to, to run the country. And to put it in context, in the year to 30 June 2019, uh, government's expecting to collect around $84 billion in both direct tax and GST and other indirect taxes, <laughs> and another $5.8 billion in ACC fire service levies and uh, fines and other revenue. So that's the, the primary focus. Uh, but two other really important aspects of tax, uh, redistribution of, of, of wealth. Uh, tax does have a role in that. The primary means of redistributing wealth is through the wealth transfer system, but obviously progressive tax rates achieve that as well. And then thirdly and increasingly, there's a focus on corrective and behavioural taxes, things like taxes on tobacco and alcohol, and now we're looking at taxes around environmental waste, etc. So those are the three primary objectives. And one of the most important uh, messages I try and convey on tax policy is let's work out what aspect of that that we're talking about before we start talking about the tax tool that might be best to achieve it. Right. And it seems that the increase in taxes is expected to rapidly increase over the, the coming years. Yes, yeah, so the, the New Zealand tax system has performed extremely well over the last 30 to 40 years. It's served successive governments well. We're, we've basically got a sound system. And the power of that can be seen in the 2019 budget, where there's a projection of tax uh, going up by about 25% over the next four years, which is quite a significant amount, obviously. And that's driven off uh, the, the strong basis of GST and also personal and company income tax. Now, that kind of increase, though, uh, is you know, useful from a government perspective. However, we have to be cautious that we 
don't bake in spending that equals that exactly and then find that if there's a dip in the economy and the tax goes down, you've got a sudden budget imbalance. So that's a significant issue for the Minister of Finance. Yes. So that's the tax context, if you like, right now and going forward a little bit. What about, let's go back to the 70s. I remember my father used to turn on the radio and listen to the Muldoon budgets. The household was silent as we listened to what was going to hit us the next day. What was the tax system back then in the 70s? Well, I fell into tax by mistake studying at a Victoria University uh, in a postgraduate course in 1976. And at that time, New Zealand was... Uh, in really a, a pretty tough spot. The, uh, Britain had just joined the European Union, ironically. Uh, we had the, uh, the energy crisis. We had a significant downturn on exports um, and we were facing significant budget deficits. And the Muldoon response increasingly was interventionist. And at the time, to me, as a student, that seemed entirely logical. Let's introduce tax incentives that will incentivise investment or incentivise uh, people behaving in particular ways. Uh, but it, it really uh, grew on top of itself far too much. And by 1981, there were about 70 specific tax incentives which were gobbling up 42% of the tax take. So to put that in context, I mean, we're, today we're collecting about $84 billion a year in direct tax and GST. If you used 42% of that to incentivise behaviour, you have a real problem. And that's exactly what uh, Mr Muldoon, as he was then called, struck. So by 1981, the tax system was in real strife because of the amount that was being spent. The response to that, to bridge that gap, was to put up tax rates. And the top rate went up to uh, 66% in 1982. And again, as a, 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 at that stage, just starting work in tax policy, or had been in, in it for about three years, I began to realise that actually a lot of these incentives were doing an enormous amount of damage. And it really came home to roost once when uh, Mr Trotter, now subsequently Sir Ron Trotter, who was head of, um, of uh, Rights and NMA, as it was called in those days, part of the Challenge Corporation group, um, chastised me for doing something which I thought he should be pleased about. And, and that was that we had identified as his auditors that the, his company, Wrightson's, was uh, eligible for various very generous tax incentives on new grain silo installations. And they had not realised that, and they got quite a substantial refund. And I was asked, I was requested to go and meet with, with Sir Ron Trotter, which was pretty, uh, pretty traumatising for a, a, a young graduate. <laughs> And he was a big man. I remember walking to his office expecting to be congratulated. And he was quite gruff. And he said, I hear you've saved us some money, but I think this is just uh, completely wrong. And I asked why. And he said, look, as a board, we made the decision to build those new silos some five or eight years ago. It had nothing to do with these incentives. This is a misuse of Crown funds. And it was a very telling moment in my career because it made me realise, actually, that when you are as a government, using a, a strong policy tool like the tax system to incentivise behaviour, you really have to make sure you're doing it in a targeted way that doesn't result in wastage. So I began to, to change my views. And then uh, as the 66% tax rate began to bite, another kind of dramatic impact uh, for myself and other tax advisors was that basically there was civil unrest. Um, entirely law-abiding uh, law citizens 
basically said, I won't work two-thirds of the day for the government. And they reacted very strongly by investing into a whole lot of uh, farm ventures and film ventures and some mad things like you know deer running all over the hills of Peru, which probably the deer probably never existed in the first place, but by gosh, they did generate significant tax losses. Right. Um, and, and people were basically refusing to pay the 66%. So the whole... The whole tax system was um, coming down under its own weight, and of course, literally, the country was in a state of virtual bankruptcy by 1984, when the, the significant changes began to occur following the change of government. The country was slowly being broken through a number of things, economic and, and, and tax, perhaps other things as well. Uh, by '84, it in essence broke, uh, and the Longy government came in. What did the now Sir Roger uh, and David Longy do uh, over the coming years? Well, the first uh, dramatic change was that not long after they were elected, they announced, of course, that they were going to bring in a GST. And you know, that was stunning. Suddenly we had a, a government that had been elected, uh, had not campaigned on a significant tax change, but they, 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 they announced that they were going to do that. And it heralded just a completely different approach. But whilst they announced that, they also made it very clear that they were going to consult. I recall I was involved with what was then called the Society of Accountants Tax Committee. We had never been consulted by the government, and we'd been brought up to kind of oppose. So whatever uh, Muldoon proposed, we'd kind of oppose, <laughs> for no particular reason other than the fact that, generally speaking, we didn't agree with what uh, the tax measures were doing. Sir Roger Douglas, on the other hand, announced that he would be coming and visiting our committee at our offices, which was kind of stunning. And, and it was, again, uh, for me, uh, a real line in the sand because it marked the start of a tax policy reform process which has endured to this day and has served New Zealand really well. But he genuinely said, look, I don't want to debate with you guys the principle of GST because we're going to do it, but I absolutely want detailed input as to how it should um, be designed. And, and of course, that model uh, has been picked up by subsequent governments and lives, lives on today. So it was a very, very dramatic change, and it took quite a while uh, for us to get used to. And this, of course, applied across all aspects of the economy, whether it be you know, banking, capital markets, tax, uh, the, the whole reform agenda. But it was a period of enormous... Uh, consultation, uh, enormous controversy, but was made much easier, I think, by the fact that because the country was on its knees financially, everybody, whether you be uh, you know, working in, the, in a supermarket or whether you be uh, chief executive of one of New Zealand's largest companies, everyone knew that we couldn't stay as we were. So it demonstrated, to me at least, that uh, never waste a good crisis and Sir Roger and David Longy didn't waste a good crisis. They were able to achieve enormous change in a very short space of time. What were the key things that they did, in your, in your opinion? Uh, well, they go well beyond tax, of course. I mean, the complete reformation of the economy. But if I fo- Sorry, just on tax. Yeah. If I focus on tax, the, the, the really uh, biggest change was recognition by the government that that taxes have a distortionary effect and therefore you need to go back to basics and work out what are the least distortionary taxes. All taxes create distortions. One of the basic principles of tax policy is in the context of efficiency and growth, you want it 
to make sure the taxes do the least damage possible. In a perfect world, you'd have no tax, but of course that can't work because you need to run the, the government. So they very quickly referred to the research done globally that demonstrated that the most distortionary taxes are taxes on uh, salaries and wages and company profits. And so the rates were ridiculously high, 66% for individuals, top rate, 48% for companies, they had to come down. So they very quickly reduced those rates and funded that by the GST, which was brought in from 1 October 86 at a rate of, of 10%. And then they also uh, uh, abolished all of the incentives. So the, the, the 70 incentives that were gobbling up about 42% of the tax take, they disappeared within the space of about 12 months, which caused you know, enormous pain for some operations, particularly obviously farmers. But, and there's a real lesson in this, they sold it very cleverly by the trade-offs that for, for everybody who was paying more tax than previously in a particular area, in other areas they were receiving some form of discount or credit. And by and large, there was general acceptance by the business community that these measures, whilst painful, were necessary. And the fact that they haven't been reversed, you know, you hear about the failed policies of the 80s, which is complete nonsense because successive governments have stuck with those policies and they've been endorsed strongly by the likes of the OECD and the IMF and the World Bank. Perhaps a key lesson is the, is the, is the trade-offs that you're talking about. So never talk about a tax by itself if you're looking at a large tax reform package, but always as the, the trade-offs from one tax versus a, another type of, of, of tax. Yes, trade-offs are crucial. And if you look at more recent history, I think the one of the reasons, in my view, while, uh, why the 2019 Tax Working Group's recommendation of a capital gains tax in the end didn't proceed was because it was, it was put up in a way that really didn't deliver trade-offs other than in areas like, like the, the revenue from that capital gains tax would likely have been used to fund uh, additional benefits or tax cuts at the very low end. Now, that, that's fine uh, as a policy objective, but when you're asking one group to fund such a significant change for another group with no other compensating trade-offs, that is a very hard message to sell. And so it proved. If you look at uh, what John Key managed to do in 2010, when the GST went up from 125 to 15%. But the trade-off was quite a significant drop in personal tax rates across the board and, the, and also an increase in working for families. So those trade-offs are crucial. In history, if you look at the really big reforms that have come in in tax over the last 40 years, the ones that have been sold and have succeeded are the ones that have involved significant compensating trade-offs and that's a really important I think you know political lesson uh, but also it's a, a message for those wanting to advocate for tax policy reforms you've got to present both sides of the equation. Just as an aside did the Longing government ever look at some form of tax on capital? Uh, yes so in the uh, late 80s they uh, set up a, a group to in, uh, design a capital gains tax and ironically, as seems to always happen in New Zealand when we set up groups to examine capital gains tax, in the end it did not proceed because that particular group uh, uh, concluded that there were a number of other design features of the New Zealand tax system that needed to be solved first. By the time those were being addressed, we'd had a change of government. 
National came in and the, uh, the capital gains tax uh, didn't actually proceed, but they, they definitely looked at it. And I think to this day, uh, uh, Sir Roger Douglas would say that's, that's unfinished business. Uh, as indeed there are many other areas, he would argue there was unfinished business. But the cup of tea in 1989, I think it was, took care of that. Wasn't there a book called Unfinished Business? Was it? Yes, Preble, there was. Uh, uh, Sir Roger Douglas. Oh, Sir Roger Douglas, um, right. But I, I, I don't want to give the impression that, that everything was, was smelling of roses in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, the, the, the Douglas era did not cover off all the bases and one example would be when they deregulated the foreign exchange markets they didn't simultaneously bring in tax measures to deal with uh, the taxation of profits that might arise from money being moved off to these offshore uh, uh, jurisdictions which often have much lower tax rates than New Zealand. Uh, that, that loophole was closed in the late 80s but there were two or three years where it was open and there was quite a significant outflow of funds and tax lost as a result. Another example would be the, the delay in bringing in things like fringe benefit tax where uh, uh, that resulted in, in, in some um, loss of revenue. So they dealt with the really big issues, but you know it was like drinking out of a fire hose. There was so much going on. Yes. Uh, yes. And it's perhaps not surprising that some of those matters around the edges were not dealt with as expeditiously as they should have been. Do, do you remember... The, so if right now we're, we're at a about an $84 billion tax take, do, do you remember what the tax take was in nominal dollars back in the, um, in the, in the 80s? And no, I can't recall those no, figures, no, but, difficult. It, but it was a, obviously a, a fraction of that. But it was also very concentrated on, on um, individuals and companies and, of course, very high sales taxes. But the, the strength of the, what, what's been the... What has turbocharged the New Zealand tax system is the GST. It's an enormously powerful instrument, as other jurisdictions have found as well. Um, and, and it's uh, relatively less distortionary, and, and that's been hugely successful. And I think it's not surprising that John Key resorted to the GST in 2010 when he wanted to implement a, a further rebalancing of the tax system. Okay, so that's the, uh, the 80s. And then we we have the new Bolger government. What approach did they take? Well, the Bolger-Richardson era, largely in tax terms, continued the Douglas era, uh, continued with the reform program. Uh, it was it was uh, more granular in the sense that some of the big ticket items would be dealt with, and so they were dealing with some of the more uh, detailed matters. But the most significant change that occurred in the Bolger era and the Richardson era was the introduction of what what sounds really boring, but it was really important, which was the generic tax policy process. And what 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 that is, and it was designed by uh, Sir Ivor Richardson, former president of the Court of Appeal and a tax specialist. But it, it arose because the Bolger government identified, as had Sir Roger Douglas actually, that the that when you are designing tax policy, you'll benefit a lot from private sector input. You need to have contestable advice. So officials in this country, like other uh, Commonwealth countries at least, have enormous power because they have access to the politicians and they provide the advice. Uh, Sir Roger Douglas and and subsequently Mr Bolger and Ruth Richardson uh, recognised, though, the power of private sector input. So 
the, the generic tax policy process formalised what Sir Roger had started by requiring Treasury and Inland Revenue to involve the private sector in in-depth consultation around tax policy. And, and that, that came in 1984. And uh, this, again, the success of subsequent reforms, reforms subsequent to 84, uh, in large part, I think, is attributable to the success of that process. I think it's quite tough on officials because they have to deal with private sector uh, input. Um, in it's not so much these days, but in the 90s and early 2000s, there were private sector people seconded to ministerial offices. The Minister of Finance and the Minister of Revenue had private sector people in their offices, and that, that was you know extremely valuable in terms of robust debate and getting a really good uh, conclusion. Unfortunately, to some extent, that process is is not as wholesome as it used to be. We seem to be reverting a little bit to the older days of the officials doing 90% of the work or 95%. And that's one area where I have some nervousness about the, the way the tax policy process is going now. I think we need to go back and um, freshen up the generic tax policy process or we risk going back into some, falling back into some of the traps of the past. One of those traps being the tax incentives for business, and we seem to be having more and more, and perhaps this was in the key government as well, I'm not sure, but uh, more and more business tax incentives, thereby putting holes in that broad base, low rate uh, system that, um, that I think you're a strong advocate of. I fear the broad-based low-rate system is under under real threat because there's there's very high expectations today in relation to what the tax system might be able to achieve. And I think we have to... Uh, so Robert McLeod, who chaired the 2001 tax review, coined the phrase, um, uh, we must uh, proceed with extreme caution before tasking the tax system with functions for which it's ill-equipped to deliver words to that effect that I absolutely endorse his comments and yet these days not helped by the kind of one-liners across social media which then become headlines in the mainstream media uh, many people with the best intentions view tax as being a, a logical and easy way to deliver um, uh, changes which will incentivise behaviour and it ranges from business tax incentives like a strong focus on Let's incentivise research and development, and I'll come back to that, right through to whether it be sugar or red meat um, or other sort of evils that are seen as causing, uh, and they do cause problems in society, uh, let's use the tax system to fix them. And I think we have to be really careful. There has to be a very high burden of proof, in my view, before you resort to tax. And like if I take sugar as an example... And it's a very ill-defined debate at the moment. And quite rightly, the 2019 Tax Working Group on Sugar said to the government, you go away and tell us what you actually want to achieve from a policy perspective with sugar. Because if we want sugar consumption to drop dramatically, well, let's regulate for that. You ban it. Well, not ban it completely, obviously, but you put in restrictions on the amount you can have. It's unlikely that the tax system will be able to achieve that. And... Tobacco tax is a huge revenue earner, and yet it's a contradiction because actually if we're serious about wanting to reduce tobacco consumption to zero by, say, 2030, then you'd want to wipe out the several hundred million that's collected each year from that source. Um, 
and yet we know what the excise taxes on cigarettes do. They result in actually the poorer end of society being subjected to very, very high rates of tax. So I think we have to be careful. If I come back to the business tax incentives, um, uh, research and development incentive, personally I don't support. I uh, argued against it in the early 2000s when the then Labour government bought it in and, and the subsequent national government repealed it. It's now coming back in. It will, without doubt, have some um, positive effects, but you've also got to evaluate to what extent is it subsidising activities that are going to carry on in any event at quite substantial cost. So I have real reservations over that. And I've, I keep in my top drawer at home the 1981 Tax Information Bulletin, which which is a really good illustration of once you start down the slippery slope of tax incentives, then you you start with the research and development, and it's very easy to end up with about 60 or 70 others and a very narrow base, and that comes at a cost, as it means everybody else is cross-subsidising and you'll have tax rates inevitably will go back up, and that's my biggest fear, I think. The outlook is for a narrowing of the tax base and an inevitable increase in both personal and company tax rates. I almost wonder if at a board level people are saying, it's not right of course, but it illustrates a point, are saying shall we spend some budget on a lobbyist or shall we spend some budget on an export manager or a overseas distribution uh, channel. And it feels as we increase the level of uh, incentives offered to government, either direct cash or tax, uh, that that decision is going more towards the lobbyist than towards being the normal business growth decision. Well, I, I hope that's not right. Um, certainly the organisations I'm involved in, we, we, um, we don't spend anything on lobbyists. But I've <laughs> always had the view that actually if you've got a coherent policy objective... New Zealand is a country where you can get access to the decision makers. It's one of the great features of New Zealand without going um, through a lobbyist who probably doesn't understand the technical detail in any event. So then in 2010, uh, you were part of the Victoria University Tax Working Group and and your work led to uh, Sir John delivering some increases in GST and decreases in personal tax rate. But you also recommended a, a, a... a land tax as well. Perhaps talk a bit about that uh, working group and, and where you came from in terms of the land tax. So the, the 2010 tax working group was interesting because if we look, we, we have these tax reviews in New Zealand about every 10 years, typically at the start of a new government. So we had back in 1982, you had the McCaw Report, you had the Vallab Group in the late 80s, you had Sir Robert McLeod's tax review in 2001. Um, those ones were all government appointed. The 2010 one was actually a Victoria University initiative uh, which arose from a major tax conference the university had had in 2009, but it attracted the interest of uh, of the government and, and including uh, Sir John Key. And so he, he was very supportive of the idea of a university-based working group. But the big advantage that we had relative to those other working groups and relative to the 2019 tax working group is that we were completely independent of the government, point one. Point two, we had no terms of reference. It was fascinating. I remember sitting down at our first meeting and we literally had a plain sheet of paper. Where do we go? Whereas the 2019 group had quite uh, prescriptive and restrictive terms of reference. So we, we, we decided that we would focus primarily on 
the revenue raising taxes rather than the behavioural taxes. And at an early stage, and Bob Buckle, Professor Bob Buckle, Dean of the Business School at Victoria University at that time, was chair and did a fantastic job. Uh, with the research that we had from the university, assisted by Treasury and some input from the Reserve Bank, our group at an early stage reached the view that the system, tax system in 2010 was suffering from sort of three major problems. Firstly, it was very heavily reliant on the most growth distorting taxes, being taxes on individuals and companies, and there were some dangers ahead with demographic changes, etc. Um, secondly, we concluded that there was a gap in the, in the, in the taxation of capital. Uh, and thirdly, we concluded that there were a number of other distortions caused by different Entities being taxed at different rates, and so you know, if you operated through a company, you paid a much different rate than if you operated as an individual, etc. Uh, so those were the three primary areas, and um, we concluded that the system basically wasn't sustainable. But what, unlike some working groups where we took, where the view was taken that you shouldn't get involved in politics, we concluded that to present a package that was saleable, we had to accept that it would be very hard politically to make major changes in things like GST or capital gains taxes or land taxes, so we had to produce a package that would come up with trade-offs, which is what the 2010 report does. And I think, um, by and large, it was a, a well-thought-through set of alternative proposals that were put to the government in just before Christmas 2009, and which ultimately found their way through into the 2010 budget. One of those things was the land tax. Perhaps talk through the, the, the land tax proposal. The land tax proposal uh, came as part of the overall discussion around the taxation of capital. So this was the subject where our working group had the most um, debate and the greatest disparity of views. And it's interesting, if you look at history, that's what's happened to every one of the sort of four uh, tax working groups in the last 40 years. Where, or the most recent three, the McLeod one, the Victoria University one, the 2019 one, have all recommended to the government some form of increase in the level of taxation on capital. And ironically, in all three cases, the government has rejected the recommendation. So you have to sit back and say, why is it that we've got these working groups, which by and large comprise people who have got a fair bit of experience, come up with these recommendations and governments, successive governments of all colours, are saying no. And I think it comes down basically to, to politics and to the fact that the politicians want to be re-elected and, and you have to sympathise with that. If I focus specifically on the land tax proposal, our group uh, could not agree on a capital gains tax. Um, we, we were split, I think it was split uh, something like 5-3 or 5-4 against a, a comprehensive capital gains tax for basically exactly the same reasons as the minority view in the 2019 group were against it. That is, in the overall scheme of tax policy, if you carve out the family home, which which almost certainly you have to do politically, then what you're left with is a much narrower base, and our view back in 2010, and I think it was right, is that the net downside of bringing in a comprehensive capital gains tax in terms of impact on 
coherence, efficiency, fairness, those sort of core principles, was not outweighed by the upside. Um, however, we thought there was a gap, and because in the, in the taxation of capital, and the biggest component of capital by a large margin in New Zealand, the biggest component of untaxed capital relates to land. And our view was that unless you are bold enough to bring in land that is underneath people's own houses, you, you may as well forget it, which is basically what the current government's decided to do. But back in 2010, we went further and said, we think you could bring in a very low-level land tax. I think we were looking at about 0.5%. Um, and the uh, that would have applied to all land. Um, you may have had some exceptions for and variations for Murray land and some aspect of farmland, but certainly the lion's share of, of land would be caught. But the revenue from that was potentially extremely significant. It was um, up around a billion dollars uh, at a 0.5% rate, and we were able to put up a package that had compensating tax reductions and other benefits going up. So that I think the top rate would have been about of tax 23%, and most people would have been paying about. 12% or 13%. So it was a very powerful package. But the justification for it was that um, it's a very efficient tax, land tax. You can't avoid land tax. We didn't think it was as hard to sell as uh, some people suggest because local authority rates are basically a land tax. So there's already a precedent <laughs> and it's reasonably um, easy to collect. So that was the that was the basis for our conclusions. But again, it was a split decision, but the majority recommended it. And to this day, it surprises me that it didn't receive more profile than it did. There was very little attention paid to it. Sir John Key, of course, wasn't prepared to go that far. He was prepared to go with the GST. And it was fascinating. I recall we had a really useful debate with the then Prime Minister just before Christmas in 2009, giving him a heads-up as direction of travel. And initially, he didn't seem at all comfortable with either a GST increase or the land tax and we basically argued in response that if you want to reform the tax system, you're going to have to do something that's got real grunt to it uh, and is justified from a policy perspective. And I think he, he bought that argument but saw the GST as being something he could sell, which, which he did very well, actually. But he thought the land tax was not something that he would either want to sell or could sell. And, you know, I have to respect his political judgment. Maybe he's right. I don't know. But I, to this day, believe that sooner or later New Zealand's going to have to tackle this issue. Uh, ironically, it's been kicked out of the park now. The black caps will be proud of the, the, the whack that the Prime Minister <laughs> gave this one. It's it's a six, and we're not going to have this debate for another 10 years, which, which actually I think is unfortunate. I've always wondered whether uh, you have a land tax, combine it with the rates, so there's a rate that the central government collects, a land tax, of course, and then the central government hands out money to local government and also puts in various restrictions around uh, the quality of spending that local government uh, puts in place. But I suspect that is equally difficult in terms of uh, the politics. Well, I think there's an argument for that kind of reform where there's a sharing of, of land tax revenue, which is basically local authority rates equivalent, between central and local government. Uh, of course, Australia, they share the, the GST is, is um, mm. paid to the states, and that mm. seems to have caused an enormous amount of uh, stress over there. And it perhaps is one um, 
uh, precedent you need to look at very carefully. But I think there is a case for reform of the funding of local authorities. And I think there is a package there that you could look at wrapping it up with an enhanced land tax. But you've got to solve the trade-offs, and the trade-offs would be a permanent reduction in, in, in personal tax rates. The reason I say permanent, and this is a real challenge, is that the public will be rightly sceptical that they'll get the tax rate reduction now, but sooner or later a subsequent government will increase personal rates again and you end up with the worst of all worlds. And that is a challenge. And, you, of course, Parliament's sovereign. You can never bind um, future governments. So you need to be conscious of that problem. In terms of retired people who uh, don't have high income but own a large asset being their, their family house, I guess you'd increase the, their super to make up for the, um, the increase in the... And the right or the land tax. Yes, though, I mean, dealing with uh, transitional provisions like that is important. So retired people, you'd need to look after them. Uh, one way of doing that is increasing super. Uh, another would be that this tax might only apply to people who buy land after a certain date. Um, uh, another, another might be uh, for people who quite rightly say, I don't have the cash flow to fund this kind of uh, tax, that it be built into... Um, effectively a loan from the government uh, and paid at the time that the property is sold. So there are, and, and these are all big challenges. You know, I don't want to underestimate them, but there is a. I, I, I'm convinced there's a package there. You know, the irony is it'll probably take a financial crisis to actually provide the uh, rocket to put this fuel into, because that's what happened with GST back in '84, '85, and 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 we don't want to predict a future financial crisis for New Zealand, of course, but I think it's not until the going gets really tough that actually, if you want to bring in those really substantive reforms, that it's easier to get people on site. This is a podcast about the capital markets, and one of the things that keeps coming up is the extent to which people have invested in land, residential land, rather than into into growth assets, such as private businesses and, and and the stock market. I, I like the idea of a land tax because of the, the way it incentivises capital to go towards growth assets rather than what I see as being a consumption asset, being the family home. I, I, think, I think that's right. I think there's a real, uh, real issue here and there's some very good analysis in the 2019 Tax Working Group report, which I'd recommend for anyone interested in capital markets, around risk capital and the principles of taxing risk capital and the circumstances under which um, uh, government may not wish to be too active in the taxation of risk capital because by definition, if they're doing that, they're also picking up their share of the losses that arise from that risk capital. Mm. Uh, so there, there is an argument, and this is how this risk-free rate of return principle that, um, that is now applied to tax uh, overseas investments from a New Zealand portfolio investor's perspective, that's where that um, that uh, the mechanism had its genesis and um, the, the 2019 working group research makes it very clear that the biggest area of, of sort of unproductive and undertaxed capital is in that area of land without doubt and so although you can point to certain other areas I think you'd deal with 80% of the problem if you were able to tackle the land issue. That's the easy part. The hard part is that there's the particularly uh, the issue of farms and Maori land, um, very, very hard to, to, to deal with that and to what extent should you have exemptions, etc. But, but I say again, I think there is a package there and I 
by the Productivity Commission's report around productivity in New Zealand and the impact of tax on productivity and the kind of assets that we should be taxing more lightly versus those that we should be taxing more heavily, all point to doing something around land. And yet we get so emotional over it for some reason that we run away. And again, it's the politicians that have to sell it. And I can appreciate how hard it is, but sooner or later it will happen, whether it's in our lifetime, I don't know. <laughs> In terms of the, the Māori land, I understand there's, there's Treaty of Waitangi negotiations that have gone on and we, we don't want to disrupt those. In terms of farming land, how would that be handled? Well, the, the, the issue with farming land is that clearly it's, a, it, it's part, of the, part of the business of farms. The, if you imposed a tax on it, it would result in a significant burden on farming which would further erode profitability of a sector which at the moment at least, in many aspects of farming, they're not generating an acceptable return on capital now. So quite rightly, this would cause significant pressure. However, you do have to question, well, why is it? Why, why, why do we have all this, um, these assets tied up and are not producing an adequate rate of return? So that's, that's a much broader set of economic um, uh, questions there. I, I think, though, that until until this transformation in that sector, if you were to bring in a land tax, you'd have to have some very concessionary provisions around farmland. And you could do that. You could justify it. And what I've learned from tax policy over the years is that you can be reasonably generous in a transition because the decades quickly take care of it. So you can grandfather things. But if you get those principles in place and people know where they're headed going forward, they can plan accordingly. And again, the lion's share of land in New Zealand is, is, is residential land. And that's the area where you could make some real progress, I think. I suspect the lion's share is Auckland residential land, where the, the heart of the median voter lies and therefore uh, causes the most political uh, difficulty. Yes, but that again comes back to trade-offs. Right. So, And, and you said this before. So you, you increase, you have a land tax uh, and you drop your rates your, tech, your income tax rates, down to, you, you said, 23%, I think. Yeah, in, in 2010, with the modelling we were doing in the 2010 working group, at that point, a top rate of 23% was feasible. Uh, it's interesting. I think if you um, took an, an average Auckland household and you went out with a package along the lines of and uh, you know, whether this modelling works Today, I'd have to have that obviously verified, but went out with a package of a, a 0.5% land tax, which might result in a, in a, in a tax burden of, say, $1,800 a year on a typical Auckland house. Mm-hmm. But the compensation was that their top tax rate was going to be, let's say, 23%, and the scaled down accordingly as a package. That's something I think people would be pretty interesting, interested in having a look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Again, coming back to the impact of uh, taxes on incomes versus taxes on land and consumption, we know from an economic perspective the taxes on consumption and land are going to be less damaging than the taxes on income. And the land tax is on land. It's not on the improvements to the land or the, the, the housing on the land. So it's just the, 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 the land. Yeah, that's interesting. Shame that... Uh, has been lost in the tax political wilderness. 
Righty-ho, so some good work was done there, and then the 2019 tax working group was set up. Perhaps review that and, and the, the lessons that came out of that. So the 2019 tax working group is a really interesting uh, uh, exercise to look back on, and I think there'll be books written about it in the future. Um, maybe not bestsellers, but there'll be some books. <laughs> And, and the reason I say that is that uh, it was very clear when it was set up uh, that the government had a absolutely genuine desire to improve the fairness of the New Zealand tax system and to obtain advice on how they could um, uh, better structure the tax system to deal with um, uh, poverty, housing affordability, uh, environmental issues uh, and social issues. And the terms of reference... Um, uh, were very, very uh, specific and, and gave very clear guidance. Uh, my own view is that they were too restrictive, and I th- think some on that working group share that view, that they would have found it easier to have had more room to, to, to come up with packages because some of the trade-offs that they may have wanted to offer, they couldn't because of the restrictions. We have to bear in mind that it had a very bumpy political birth because initially it was suggested as part of the 2017 election campaign from Labour where they were going to set up this committee after they were elected into government and that resulted in people saying well hang on are we electing a government or a committee and then the the Labour committed to well we'll set up a committee but we will not legislate, we will not um, uh, uh, introduce any measures that have effect before the 2020 election so that was the way they dealt with that um, criticism but it did mean that they'd already committed to any significant changes being taken to the electorate. Contrast that with 2010 and back in the Roger Douglas days where they weren't taking these substantive matters out to to, to the electorate. So uh, the group uh, was chaired by Sir Michael Cullen. I thought that was an inspired choice in the sense that a very, very able man and someone who I thought would be able to sell very well the arguments for expanding the tax base to include uh, some kind of tax on capital, which was clearly one of the government's objectives, and they've been pretty open about that. Um, with the benefit of hindsight, although I think Sir Michael did a, a, a very, very good job in terms of the way he did articulate things, I had underestimated, though, the, the effect of him being a former, obviously very senior politician, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance, um, that, I think, resulted in some in the public seeing him as an extension of um, the government. So it caused some scepticism yes. as to the independence of the group. So the lesson, I think, for me from that is that actually you're probably best to keep these groups as independent as possible from government. That in no way is a criticism of Sir Michael. I have enormous respect for him. But I, I think the, the history there is uh, interesting. Um, the other... Um, Interesting development there, of course, was it was apparent from an early point that with the particular mix on that group, which was more diverse than earlier tax working groups, and I can understand the reasons for that, so you have people with particular expertise in social policy and married and so on, environmental issues, but the more diverse, there was perhaps less focus by some on the economic principles of tax policy, and that resulted in a likelihood that there was going to be a disparity of opinion. And indeed, that's, of course, what happened, where you got a minority of three came out with a report which 
disagreed with the primary recommendation of the group, which was to bring in a comprehensive capital gains tax. Uh, and I think that was always going to be difficult for the government um, um, to handle. The other really interesting development with the 2019 working group, which I think is a lesson for future governments and future working groups, is that they produced their final report in, I think, February of 2019. And then there was quite a delay whilst the government decided what they wanted to do. And the government finally responded, I think, in April, mid-April, to the working group's recommendations. In the meantime, that gap was filled by all manner of... um, well-meaning commentators, and perhaps some who were not so well-meaning, some who were deliberately trying to undermine the process, and particularly around the capital gains tax, which completely dominated the the whole um, media debate, there was some very, very strong criticism. And I could sense that the public was getting unsettled, because although they'd been told that if a capital gains tax came in, it would only impact, I remember the Prime Minister saying, 4% of New Zealanders, and it was going to be you know, straightforward, etc. And the reality was it was it was not straightforward, and we began to get examples of what happens if grandma dies and the house is held for a while and then sold, and what about the holiday house, and what about all these valuations that will have to occur? And so the public began to get you know very very edgy, and it's interesting. History tells you that you underestimate the public at your peril, and I I gave a public address in. Uh, Feb- uh, March of 2019 where I said to quite a big group this package doesn't have a bolt of show of being accepted by the government or the public because it was simply too too scary and right. the, and it lacked the trade-offs and, and that's exactly what has happened and it's uh, I think in many respects unfortunate that it, the direction it did but there are many lessons to be taken out of it however there's some really good material in their report and there's a number of other there's it's interesting, there are 99 recommendations. If you ask the public, I doubt whether the people would get beyond the capital gains tax one. So the other 98 have caught it kind of <laughs> wallowing in the, in, the, in, the, in the sea somewhere. There will be some, um, I think, response from government. They've already committed to researching a number of those ideas. And, and things like environmental taxation, etc., I think we will see some... Uh, reforms that are based on this working group's work, but unfortunately it will always be known for the capital gains tax that didn't ever proceed. So true. That were, that dominated the agenda for so long. The And it was just the CGT, the capital gains tax. It's interesting how it was almost more of a PR disaster than a working group disaster. Um, but anyhow. I think it demonstrates the need for, and it's hard for a government in receipt of a report to give a prompt response, but it demonstrates the need for there to be immediate political leadership, uh, which they gave, but they gave, I think, with great respect to the government, some weeks too late, hmm. and therefore they lost, you know, someone else was driving the debate, and, uh, you know, the results speak for themselves, I think there's a real lesson in that. As I said before we started the recording, I remember hearing the uh, announcement that they were going to put a, a CGT on on um, on the sales of, of business and, and and thinking, by golly, there's going to be a lot of work there for, <laughs> for valuing businesses. Uh, it's not good for, uh, for, for clients, but um, boy, is there a revenue stream there. And I think every lawyer and an accountant, anyone involved with the capital markets, saw a huge stream of, of fees and felt 
embarrassed and bad that such a fee um, would be made from what would be such a uh, difficult uh, tax to be applied to, to the client base. Yes, the, the, the package was so comprehensive that the consultants would have made a fortune. Again, the government said that's not not the case, it's going to be really simple, but it was that was completely contrary to the facts. I think the taxation of, of business in the capital gains tax regime is hugely complicated. The big, one of the big issues in New Zealand, of course, is with imputation. You've got one layer of tax, and it was easy to demonstrate that a capital gains tax that taxes a gain on what's basically the discounted cash flow of future profits. There's an element of double tax, and how do you eliminate that? So immediately you got all these very technical issues, which caused people's eyes to glaze, caused the consultants to smile. But the worst aspect of it, it caused business uncertainty, and you saw the impact on the share price of certain entities that, that you know they were beginning to wobble a bit as people were unclear about what all this would mean. So. That, that was unfortunate, um, and I think at the end of the day, the, the whole regime was far too ambitious. It was much broader. They have a non-inflation-adjusted capital gains tax uh, with no grandfathered assets that were going to apply to basically all business assets uh, with very little in the way of concessions to deal with some of those complex issues we touched on. Very, 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 very ambitious, and as I said earlier, it was never going to sell. And what? Many business owners probably don't understand is that valuing a business has a wide range, an incredible, incredibly wide range, depending on the assumptions uh, behind uh, that that report or that valuation. And likewise, what could happen is uh, the IRD could choose one number, your lawyer could choose the other, and the person that would decide would be uh, the Supreme Court. The people that would decide would be the Supreme Court in the end. It would have been a litigation feast. Yes, and that points to violation of one of the fundamental principles of good tax policy is compliance and administration costs. Yes. And uh, the costs would have been um, enormous. Now, uh, you have to trade those off against the benefits, but I, the, the minority report made a very strong and cogent argument. It's only nine, nine or ten pages, but uh, the primary driver of that, I think, was probably Robin Oliver, who is one of, if not the most respected tax policy people in New Zealand, was Deputy Commissioner of Inland Revenue and Head of Policy for many, many years, used to be also in tax policy and in Treasury. And Robert Oliver has an, uh, an uncanny knack of expressing in very clear terms uh, matters that have been troubling the public for a long time. And so I recall in a couple of radio interviews, he, he basically ditched the capital gains tax. And I think his, his impact... Uh, was very, very significant. Um, he argues, and I think I, I agree with him, that you can take the incremental approach on something like this and that we are better off the untaxed areas, in particular residential housing and, and rental housing, which do appear to be undertaxed. You can deal with those in different ways. You don't need to bring in this enormous reform which sort of blows holes in other parts of the tax system and causes lots of business and uh, uncertainty and also grief to, to to private individuals. So, you know, it's not we, we shouldn't say this debate is over. It's not. And the minority report, I think, gives a very uh, good framework to move forward on, although, interestingly, the government has kind of 
rejected that. And that's what took everybody by surprise. Yes. The fact that they didn't only say we won't go ahead with the immediate proposal, just don't come back and talk about it uh, in the foreseeable future, which is a big surprise. So in terms of the future, in terms of tax policy in the future, what's going to happen? There's, there's an issue there with bracket creep, an issue there with more and more spending or tax breaks. What's going to happen in the future and, and how do we avoid a, another disaster like we had in 1984, though perhaps that was such a disaster we'll never ever go back to those days? <coughs> I do think we've got some real challenges ahead on the tax front because the, um, the the impact of inflation, low as it is, has meant that we now have the 30% tax rate cutting in at, at an incredibly low level, $48,000, and the top rate's only 33%, so it's not really that much different, and that comes in at 70. And successive governments have left it at that level, and now it means that a very significant number of Kiwis are on either the top rate or very, very close to it. Now, it's expensive to change that. Once you get everyone paying those rates, as soon as you move the brackets, that that obviously costs a lot of money. And at the same time, we've got um, uh, what looks to be an economic downturn coming, as you would expect, driven by global and domestic events. And yet we're forecasting a 25% increase in tax over the next four years. I, I can't see that 25% being collected. I, I may be wrong, but and I hope I am wrong. But I just think if we look at the global trajectory and we mirror that locally, to say that we're going to get a, uh, an increase in tax of about 4 or 5% a year with the economic growth being 2.8, I don't quite understand how that can be the case. So that means, I think, that we're going to um, have pressure on for rate increases and it also means we're really not in a good position to deal with some of the other anomalies that the tax working group in 2019 identified, such as no tax relief on seismic expenditure, which is a major issue, especially in the Wellington area. Uh, the inability to depreciate buildings, even in circumstances where clearly they do depreciate, that's an expensive problem to fix. Um, so there's a number of areas where the tax system requires reform, but um, both officials and politicians seem quite quick at dealing with matters that, of reform that raise money, but not so quick at dealing with matters of reform that result in a revenue reduction. And I understand that, but sooner or later that catches up with you. So I, um, uh, looking ahead, would be surprised if we don't face a scenario in, say, 2023, um, which is the sort of four-year out year period from the 2019 budget where tax rates and or GST don't increase. And, and a, a, you know, a GST increase to say um, 175 or 18.5% or increases in personal tax rates um, must be a possibility. Again, I hope I'm wrong. But we, we have to be really careful because we've, the tax system's been managed extremely well over the last 30 years. 40 years almost, uh, we have to be careful not to lose those gains. And yet some of the design features now that are coming through are putting real pressure on. I suspect if we are forecasting that the tax take will increase to, I think it was $105 billion in uh, 2023, that government expenditure will 
naturally match that 105 billion, even if it's forecast right now. And if there's an economic recession, even a mild one, the government expenditure will be even higher than 105 billion unemployment benefit, for example. And the tax take will be much lower and we'll start to have an exaggerated increase in deficits uh, compared to what would happen if, if we didn't have that. I agree with that. I mean, Bill English coined the phrase in his uh, valedictory speech, um, beware the dangerous complacency of good intentions. And uh, there is a risk that you build in well-meaning and in many respects justified increases in spending to deal with some of the social problems that the country faces, some of the environmental challenges that we face. And you bake that, hard bake in that expenditure and then the revenue falls away. So you've got one variable that's um, highly uh, um, highly uh, volatile in one sense and is, is um, quite possible that it could drop quite significantly, whereas the other tends to, once it's baked in, it's very hard to roll it back. So I, I think that that is a challenge. Um, that's not lost on Grant Robertson. You know, he's clearly across these issues, but... Um, Gee, it's a hard, it's a hard equation to balance, and um, there are some there are some clouds out there. Any final thoughts about uh, tax reform and uh, the, the the way forward? I, I think the key uh, when I look back on what's now about a forty five year career in in tax policy, I. Uh, first thing I'm very proud of what New Zealand's achieved. I think um, mm. when you look at the cop case, we were in the early 80s and in the position we're in now with the tax system, I think we should be proud of what's been achieved. But I think we need to preserve that. We, we, you know, sooner or later someone will do something like provide an exemption from, you know, GST shouldn't be imposed on bananas or something ludicrous like that, and that'll be the slippery slope that will begin to unravel um, one aspect of the reforms that's been so successful. And I think we need to learn from history, uh, as we've talked about, and there are many really good Things, things that have gone well, things that have not gone so well, so let's listen from that. And I'm really pleased that the current government is committed to the broad-based low rate as a non-negotiable strategy, and I think hopefully that will survive um, because that's been um, hugely important to our success. And then the final message I'd say, uh, history makes it very clear that major reforms will only succeed if the timing's absolutely right. Point one, if you've got a really strong communicator. Point two, and point three, if you take the public with you. Politicians underestimate the public at their peril, and the biggest tax reform failures in my term in the game have been driven by politicians who underestimated the the, the public and then did a really poor job trying to explain what they were trying to achieve in the first place. Thank you, John. Much appreciated. Thank you. All opinions expressed by podcast guests and myself are solely our own opinions and do not express the opinion of anyone else. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. See you next time.